We continue with our scripture reading from the book of Exodus. And before I do that, I'm going to, to ask if one of the ushers would get me a cup of water. I, I came with something, but I need a cup of water, and I would thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Last that we saw Moses in Exodus, he, had, uh, he was sitting at a well in Midian, part of Saudi Arabia today. And he was learning that it was not all about him, but it was about God, that God's vision for Israel, God's compassion for the Hebrews was much deeper and wider than anything Moses could ever imagine. He had taken matters into his own hands and he found himself in what I call the back 40 of the milder of the Midian wilderness. And so now we come to chapter 3. I'll read verses 1 through 12 and then read only a portion of chapter 4, picking up with a few verses in chapter 14, and then we'll move to the New Testament for one verse. As I read, I remind you, this is the inerrant and the infallible word of the living God. Exodus chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 12. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people of Egypt. You shall out of when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then we intercept the narrative again at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. In chapter 14, this is now applied. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. In the New Testament, one verse, the letter of St. Paul to his young protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much.
unresolved failure. can become illogical fear. And can attack the faith that you need for living. And faith for the future. This is a highly theological term, but I offer it to you anyway. That is called a slump. In 1922, the most unlikely Major League Baseball player of all had the slump of all slumps. He had been ejected from several games. His off-season antics were getting headlines, much to the chagrin. of the owners of the club he played for, and his fellow players. When he faced Hub Pruitt of the St. Louis Browns, Hub Pruitt was known for what the sports writers of 1922 called a snarky screwball. When he faced Hub Pruitt, He struck out 10 times out of 14. He walked once, he walked twice. So he had two hits out of 14 pitches. And the rest of the season kind of went that way for him. He was in a slump and by the time he made it to the World Series and he did despite the slump, he encountered another slump. Strikeout after strikeout, his batting average was 118. If you're not a baseball aficionado, that's, that's low if you're a major league superstar. You see, even people like Babe Ruth can have a slump. But when you have a slump that is a spiritual slump, that's a different thing. What happened to the old Bambino, as Babe Ruth was called, was one strikeout, two strikeouts, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, they begin to compile and conspire together to whisper in his ear, you can't do it. It's over. So that when the babe would step up to bat, these voices of failure were in his ear. And he was almost destined to strike out again. And he did. Yeah, the greatest baseball players can have a slump, but I've had a slump. I've had periods in my life where I look back at things in my life and the failures, unresolved, and by unresolved, 
In our faith, I mean failures that, not, that have not been offered to the Lord for healing and for his sovereign grace to take that failure and to begin to incorporate it into all of the wholeness and the fullness of his plan for your life. I have had spiritual slumps where those failures whisper in my ear and it creates illogical fear for today and it begins to rob me of the faith that I need for the morrow. Now, I suspect some of you have had that too. It's, it's also called spiritual depression. One of the books that I, I tend to recommend to our seminarians, excuse me again, I may not be in a slump right now, but I'm, I'm pretty dry, that's for sure. And I may be in a slump too. I like to recommend Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. Lloyd-Jones was a famous Welsh preacher who ended up preaching at Westminster Chapel in London for many years and was greatly influential in the lives of pastors of, of, of his generation and still today through the many books that are published, though he died in the early 1980s. He was a medical doctor. Uh, who had become a minister. He was called to be a preacher. He continued to diagnose and treat the human soul in the same way as he would diagnose and treat his patients when he was the Queen's surgeon at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, which is the oldest hospital in the world of its kind. And he said that one of the great maladies that faces Christians is the, the illness of spiritual depression. And he would go on to explain, using Psalm 42, which we read before our offertory, using that psalm to describe what spiritual depression looks like. I thought about Babe Ruth, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, boy, you don't think about those in the same sentence often. But I thought about baseball slumps, since we're in baseball season now, and I do love it. And I thought about Martin Lloyd-Jones teaching on spiritual depression, because I've been teaching a pastoral care and pastoral counseling class at a seminary recently. And I said, well, that's, that, that's exactly what I see here in Moses. Unresolved failures creating illogical fears and robbing the faith needed to walk into the future and be useful. Because Moses had the failures that we talked about the last time I was with you. The failure of trying to take matters into his own hand and killing an Egyptian taskmaster, military guard, and then having to run from the kingdom where he was a prince to find himself at a well in Midian 
But by the time we read today's scripture, you hear about his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. So looks like the Lord used that time at the well to do some very special things in his life and brought him his companion for life. And also a very wise counselor who would come into his life again. That is his father-in-law, Jethro. But there he is when he comes to this very famous scene of the burning bush. The bush is on fire and yet the bush is not consumed. And a voice from heaven speaks out of the bush to Moses and calls Moses to be a leader and a representative for God. To do the very thing that Moses thought he knew all about, the suffering of the uh, Hebrews, the need for freedom for the Hebrews, and God is saying, I know all about that in a way that's far beyond you, it seems to be saying in the text. But I've got plans for you now to do it my way, the Lord is saying. You are going to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and you're going to lead them out to a land that I have already promised your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a land, as we look at the entirety of the Bible, the land that will bring forth a people, a nation, and out of that nation will come a Savior, and that Savior then will be a blessing to the entire earth. So this was not merely about the Hebrews gaining a piece of ground. This is an important chapter in the history of your salvation and your guarantee of eternal life. But the failure of Moses causes him to present objection after objection that could be characterized in two ways. Who am I? And who are you? And what's underneath that is fear. And a lack of faith. Not the saving faith, but the faith to live the life of a disciple. And all of a sudden Moses is experiencing the same things that you and I experience. But mercifully, the Lord leads us through this narrative. And New Testament says these Old Testament things were written, these Old Testament writings were written for a purpose. They were written to help you and to show you God's will. Well, what is that? This passage is about how God overcomes fear and failure with faith. Now, how does that work? If we follow the passage, we can see three very important 
words of guidance to emerge on how God overcomes fear and failure with faith. And the way I put it is the way I heard it put to me many years ago by an older preacher then, and I'm sure he's with the Lord now. But I give credit to this uh, anonymous preacher. I don't really know his name, but many, many years ago, maybe three decades, uh, I remember his words. And it helped me as I was thinking about this passage of how to, how to give this as a gift to you. Because some of you may be experiencing, uh, maybe you're in college, and you've had, you've had some bad grades, and that, that keeps whispering in your ear, well, I'm going to fail the next test too. Or maybe it's even, even at another level where the, you've been in a relationship, and that's gone sour. And you said, well, I can never do this again. I am destined for loneliness. Or maybe it is the kind of failure that we have and that we experience a failure with God. I've tried to live the Christian life. I, I, I've tried to follow God. And look, look at me, you say to yourself. Oh yes, everyone else sees me and I might look fine, but I, I know what's, what's in there. In fact, I, I've, I've shoved it so far down I, haven't, I don't like to think about it until now you're bringing it up. How does God do it? Note the passage. And the first way is the way that God deals with Moses and his objections. So Moses says in chapter 3, essentially, uh, who am I to do this? Uh, they're not going to listen to me. God answers him patiently. And then Moses says, well, 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 who are you? That is, if I go tell them God is told me that I'm going to lead you out of Israel. You need to follow me. Who are you? What name shall I give? And that's where God says, I am that I am. And this back and forth with Moses and God continues until chapter 4. Moses gives another answer. They're not going to listen to me. Verse 1, they're going to say, the Lord didn't appear to you. You're, you're seeing things. And then verse 2, it is a non sequitur. That is, it, had no, it has nothing to do with the logical progression of the, of the conversation before. All of a sudden, God just pops into the middle of the discussion and says, what's in your hand? Moses says, a, uh, a rod, a staff. Now, do you think God stopped the conversation to ask, what's that in your hand? Because God, God didn't know what was in his hand? No, you know God, our Lord, knew exactly what was in his hand. And he, though it seems like a non sequitur, an illogical place uh, to put that kind of question, it was the perfect place to put that kind of question. 
because it stopped. It was now going to stop all of the objections and go to the core to why Moses was giving those objections. It didn't have anything to do with the objections necessarily, but it had to do with something deep underneath there. What's in your hand? Well, if we could look into the text and suppose for just a, a moment that, that we were the one that God caught in the act of objecting when the real issue was something else. What's in your hand? Moses might have said, A, a staff to herd sheep with, but it used to be a scepter. What's in your hand? It's a, uh, it's a sign of failure. What's in your hand? It's the mark of my exiled Spirituality. It's a sign of my failure. Now, all of that is not said. But what is sure in the text is God stopped him, stopped the objections at that point, and just asked, Now, what's that in your hand? Used to be a scepter, now. It is, as I heard someone call it, a sheep stick. It's the sign of pain. And it's a sign of failure in your life. So God tells Moses the words that we need to hear. Throw it down. And that's the first point. And the first part of the response of how does God overcome, overcome fear and failure with faith? Well, first of all, you've got to throw it down. Throw what down? Throw, throw down name and place before God that thing which has been eating you and hurting you for so long. Throw it down. Now, in your heart. A number of years ago, there was a perplexing sin in my life, and I'll not name the sin before you. I had shoved it so far into the recesses of my soul that I was good at forgetting it. But like a worm that was eating all the sustenance that I put into my soul, I recognized that I, I wasn't growing as a believer. And it was not in my life until I actually heard a prayer, like a pastoral prayer, 
that God came to me in my spirit and said, throw it down. Because God always knew it was there. And any objection I had about my usefulness in the kingdom of God, in my mind, I could always go back to that worm in my soul that had created fear in my life to follow God into the deeper parts of his will. When I heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that part of the gospel that says our God is sovereign, it brought great healing to me because it told me that the very thing that was on the inside of me, the thing that was unconfessed, unreconciled, unresolved before the Lord, that thing, that hurt and that pain, God can incorporate into the fullness of his divine, his sovereign plan for my life and my life and my part within the larger body of Christ. So the sovereignty of God became for me a doctrine filled with life. I'd been orphaned as a boy. I'd gone through some hard times as a little fellow. But all of a sudden, rather than running from the pain and then sin that came out of the pain... I learned I could actually now offer the pain, offer the failure, offer it all to God. Throw it down. So Moses threw it down, and you know what happened. It turns into a serpent. Serpent typology in Scripture always leads us to not only the devil, but to danger. The sign of potential death. And so Moses did exactly what I would do if a, if a rod, if a sheep stick turned into a viper, I would run, and he ran. So then God gives him guidance that, that I want to share with you today from God's Word. Throw it down. But secondly, pick it up. God told Moses to pick it up. That rod used to be the sign of power that Moses had as a prince of Egypt. But it had turned into a staff. And that, that, that failure in Moses' life had to be dealt with. It was dangerous as a viper on the ground. And the only way for Moses to go forward, the only way for him to be able to stand before the people of Israel and declare God's word is that he came clean with God. He had to throw it down, but he had to also reach out to the very thing that had been destroying him on the inside. And it was exactly what God turned that rod into. It was a serpent. Dangerous, poisonous, fearful. 
God said, pick it up by the tail. And he did. And it turned into the staff. That staff, you see, would never be the same again. It's no longer a sign of failure. It's a sign of the transforming power of Almighty God. What am I saying? Whatever the failure is in your life, whatever the, the sin is in your life, maybe it's not your sin, but someone sinned against you and hurt you. Throw it down. That is, bring it to the Lord this morning, right now. But also pick it up. You can't sweep away the pain and the failure in your life and act like it's never happened. God says, no, embrace it. The very thing that is sought to destroy you, you're now going to pick up and it's going to become a testimony. It's going to become part of your life and your ministry. That's what he's telling you. The divorce. The loss of your child. The broken and shattered dreams that you had for your life. You do not need to push those into the recesses of your soul. Throw them down and pick them up and see how God will transform them. And the last part of this is wonderful. Lift it high. For God tells Moses, whenever you're in trouble, lift up that staff. Lift up that staff which you're never going to forget what happened. How I saved you. How I redeemed the years that the locust ate. As we will learn in Joel 2.25. Throw it down, pick it up, but lift it high. And it was in chapter 14 that I read of Exodus that Moses finds himself with the mightiest army in the world on one side of him and the Red Sea on the other. And in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. To go forward into the sea. How? The next verse. Lift up the rod. Remember the staff, Moses. Oh, yeah, right. And the Red Sea parted. And the people of Israel walked on dry ground into the future that God had planned for them, a future that would ultimately bless all of us whoever trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever hard times come, and whenever the challenges come to our lives, we need not, as believers, any longer 
shove our failures into the back of our lives or hide them like they never happen. Or the hurt or the pain or the thing that is crippling you and giving you heartache and brokenness. Now you lift it high. Now it's your testimony of what God has done in your life. It's a testimony of the transforming power of God. And Paul would tell Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear. You see, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is exactly throwing it down, picking it up, and raising it high. For the cross of our Savior was Satan's instrument for death. The death of God, the second person of the Trinity. But he became, through the power of God in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the symbol of salvation. And so we sing sometimes, Lift high the cross. And we can sing that, each and every one of us. As we remember how God has transformed the hurt and the pain and the brokenness of our lives, it's now our testimony. And that's the gospel. That the thing that has sought to destroy you has been transformed and turned into the very thing that will bless you and bless others. 1923 ended up being a pretty good year for the old babe. He had a batting average of 393, which for you non-baseball fans, again, is, you can tell, that's a lot higher than 115 or 117. He went back to the World Series, and there the New York Yankees defeated the New York Giants in the first game the first World Series, the first season, played in Yankee Stadium. Now, your life may not come up out of the slump quite like Babe Ruth's redemption from a batting slump, but I can promise you this, that whatever it is in your heart right now, if you will offer it to God, throw it down, and then see it for what it is. Yes, it's dangerous. Yes, it's painful. Name it thusly in your heart. But now God says, don't run from it anymore. Pick it up. And whenever the hard times of your life come, and you're hemmed in from both sides, raise it high. This is the gospel of how God overcomes fear and failure with faith. Let's pray.